So yeah, there was uh, this this individual named Bill Orban who was a hockey player from the Canadian prairies. Uh, and he went to the U.S. on a hockey scholarship and he eventually got his PhD. And the Canadian military, the Royal Canadian Air Force, this was in the uh, the, the height of the Cold War in the, the, the mid-50s. Uh, you know, you had these Canadian pilots stationed in the far Arctic and they basically sat around all day and were quite sedentary. And so the irony is that they're supposed to be protecting the fate of the free world. And yet, at a time, fully one third of Canadian pilots were deemed so out of shape they were unfit to fly. And so Orban came up with this program called 5BX for five basic exercises. Uh, a colleague of mine says it was just P90X without the marketing. Uh, but, you know, it was these body weight style exercises, calisthenic type child style training that you could do anywhere. And he found it to be very effective at getting these soldiers back into shape. And the program really spread from there beyond the military. And over 20 million pamphlets of, of 5BX have, uh, have subsequently been published. Hi, I'm Pete McCall. And thank you for tuning in to the All About Fitness podcast. That voice you just heard in the beginning is the guest for this episode, Dr. Martin Gabala. Now, before I go into the full introduction for Marty, I got some cool news to share with you. I don't know how many of you have heard of the new app, Clubhouse. And yes, I know you're thinking, oh gosh, just what I need, another social media app, another thing to waste time on on the phone. But actually, Clubhouse is kind of cool. I've been playing around with it. A friend of mine invited me to join. And what Clubhouse is... It's, it's an app of chat rooms of live chats. You're not just posting text, you're not sharing videos, but you're joining a live conversation. People on Clubhouse are holding all kinds of conversations about all sorts of topics. And what I plan on doing is have at least one Clubhouse once a week where I talk about the All About Fitness podcast, where I share about, I kind of recap previous episodes, I share upcoming episodes. I talk about certain topics that are relevant to help to learning how to use exercise to enhance our quality of life. So if you're not on Clubhouse, look for the Clubhouse app, see if you can join it, and look for me, Pete McCall, on Clubhouse, because I will be doing Clubhouse chats. I'm going to try to do it at least once a week to really engage with you, the audience. I want to make this very interactive. It's hard to have a conversation when I'm recording a podcast, but on Clubhouse, we can hang out, we can have a conversation. You can ask me questions, I can provide feedback, and I can hear what you want from the All About Fitness podcast. And if you're not already following me on Instagram, go to Instagram, look for the All About Fitness podcast Instagram feed, and that's where I'll be posting when I'll be going live on Clubhouse. I'll be putting up stories, I'll be putting a post up on my Instagram feed, announcing when I'm going to go live. And once I find a good day and time, I'm going to be consistent with that. So look out for the Clubhouse app because I will be doing conversations there to really engage with, with you, my audience. Now, that said, this is a fun conversation. And to be 100% honest, this is a rerun conversation. Now, I interviewed Dr. Gabala last year right after lockdown happened and we started quarantining because Marty's research on HIT is very relevant to training at home. This conversation took place in 2017 about his book, One Minute Workouts. And I know, I know that sounds like an infomercial title, but in reality, when it comes to high-intensity interval training, less is more. 
and you'll, what you'll hear today is you'll hear Marty talk about his research about what he's found is that when it comes to hit, it's the intensity, not the duration that has the greatest effect. Now, one quick thing about Marty, and, and I've been kind of a fanboy of his for a few years because a number of years ago, I wrote a, a education program for metabolic conditioning and based a large part of it on, on Marty's research. And you have to understand that up until the late 1990s, early 2000s, most of the research on high-intensity training, high-intensity interval training, high-intensity strength training, most of that research was done in the context of performance athletes, how to help athletes perform better. If you've ever done a four-minute Tabata interval, that was research done on Japanese speed skaters, the national speed skating team. It was only done on eight speed skater athletes. What they're looking for is a way to enhance aerobic capacity with less time. That's really where the research about HIT training came up. And that's what we talk about today. In his book, One Minute Workouts, Marty does a great job talking about the history of HIT training. That's also why I ran that quote at the beginning. Because HIT is not new. HIT's been around going back decades. But thanks to a number of different forces, part of it is Marty's research. Part of it is the popularity of programs like CrossFit and Les Mills Grit. There is actually there's a line in a study I read a number of years ago that said most general population cannot sustain the high-intensity work effort of HIT. Well, we know different. We know it's one of the most popular formats, one of the most popular modes of exercise because it works. And if you want to learn how to use HIT in your programs, I have a couple of solutions for you. One, you can pick up a copy of my book, Smarter Workouts. I have a whole chapter in there on metabolic conditioning and teach you how to do high-intensity interval training using only one piece of equipment. I also have the book, Exercise Program Designed for the Fountain of Youth. And it, it talks about metabolic conditioning in the context of how it slows down the aging process. Exercise Program Designed for the Fountain of Youth is a prequel for my upcoming book, Ageless Intensity, where I go into the science of how high-intensity exercise and HIIT training can mitigate many of the effects of the biological aging process. And if you don't want to purchase a piece of content, then go to PeteMcCallFitness.com. That's PeteMcCallFitness.com. Sign up for my mailing list. I will send you a chapter from Smarter Workouts. I'll send you a bodyweight workout from Smarter Workouts. And you'll get one or two high-quality emails a month direct to your email box that will teach you how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. So here we go with Dr. Marty Gabala. You're going to learn a lot about HIIT training and how to apply your workouts. So let's get started with the conversation. I'm Pete McCall with All About Fitness. I'm on the phone today or on the line today with Dr. Martin Gabala out of Canada. Um, Marty, can you give us a little bit of background about what it is that you do and kind of the work that you've been doing? Uh, sure. I'm a professor and the chair of the kinesiology department at McMaster University. We're in Hamilton, which is about an hour outside of Toronto. Uh, I've been here for about uh, 17 years. Uh, I teach uh, and conduct research uh, related to the body's adaptations to exercise. Uh, we do both applied human performance studies and we do very basic molecular work looking at how skeletal muscle responds to the, to the stress of exercise. And how did you get interested in the first place? I mean, were you an athlete growing up or what, what, was your, what, what kind of uh, sparked your interest in exercise science? 
Yeah, probably like a lot of people who get into kinesiology, played a lot of different sports, was hardly an expert at any of those. But uh, I, I almost went, I, I was accepted into university to be an architect and sort of changed my mind at the last minute because in my last year of high school, I got into triathlons. And so kinesiology sound like a neat fit. Uh, but that's how I started. Uh, really fell in love with human physiology and just progressed from there. Uh, how I got into interval training was uh, I, I used to teach and I still teach to this day a course called the Integrative Physiology of Human Performance. All of my students are fascinated by the training regimes of elite athletes. And, you know, you go back to the turn of the century and there were elite middle distance runners winning Olympic gold medals, training only exclusively uh, using short, hard intervals. And at the time I was a busy young assistant professor with a working wife, young kids, and quite ironically for a professor of exercise physiology, found myself with little time to work out. And so I started adopting some interval training programs of, of my own and, and found them to be quite effective. So it's, it's really been a professional and personal interest. And over time, I've, I've just gained more of an appreciation for both the athletic and the scientific history of interval training. Well, and, and you book, your, your book, The One Minute Workouts, does a great job of kind of covering some of the history of interval training. Why do you think it is? Why do you think athletes, if it was so successful a number of years ago, why do you think athletes, especially here in the West and primarily the United States, why do you think they moved away from that type of training if it, if it demonstrates success? Yeah, great question. And it's sort of, if you look at the history, it goes in and out of flavor, as you allude to. And I think part of it, it's just that um, approaches to training differ over time. Uh, you know, it's you can have a very good debate around some athletes. Are they successful in spite of their training or because of their training. And most of these elite athletes are experiments of, of one. And so, you know, could certain world records be a little bit better if that individual had trained a little bit different? We're not really sure. But, you know, I, I think the bottom line is that interval training has come in and out of flavor at, at, at varying times. Uh, and certainly, you know, in the early 70s and that for uh, distance running, uh, it was all about volume, uh, certainly with a lot of the American runners. Uh, and then, of course, it's uh, the tide turns uh, a little bit as, as you go through. So I don't really have the answer other than different fads and approaches uh, come in and out of flavor over time. And, uh, you know, we really have to look to our history to, uh, to understand that. Well, and you do a great job of covering the history of what the Canadian military did. And isn't it, I mean, do you find it ironic now that, that kind of some of the militaries are coming back to what Canada originally did? But how long was it, about 40, 50 years ago? I just love that story. So yeah, there was uh, this this individual named Bill Orban, who was a hockey player from the Canadian Prairies. Uh, and he went to the US on a hockey scholarship, and he eventually got his PhD. And the Canadian military, the Royal Canadian Air Force, this was in the uh, the, the height of the Cold War in the, the, the mid-50s. Uh, you know, you had these Canadian pilots stationed in the far Arctic, and they basically sat around all day and were quite sedentary. And so the irony is that they're supposed to be protecting the fate of the free world, and yet at a time, fully one third of Canadian pilots were deemed so out of shape they were unfit to fly. And so Orban came up with this program called 5BX for five basic exercises. Uh, a colleague of mine says it was just P90X without the marketing. Uh, but, you know, it was these. <coughs> body weight style exercises, calisthenic type child style training that you could do anywhere. And he found it to be very effective at getting these soldiers back into shape. And the program really spread from there beyond the military. And over 20 million 
pamphlets of, of 5BX have uh, have subsequently been published. But I just love the great story because, you know, a little bit of Canadiana uh, and, and, and uh, this hockey player, because, you know, hockey uh, sort of epitomizes these short, hard workouts. And interval training, I think, has uh, a lot of applications in, in team sport as well. Well, it's, it's interesting that you mention that, Marty, because a friend of mine uh, from Edmonton, actually, he uh, created a, a product based on his training with uh, hockey players. His friend uh, was a strength coach, I think, with the Canucks, in Vancouver, I might be maybe the Oilers. I think I think Benny worked with the Oilers, but I don't know if you know if you've crossed paths with Michelle Dalcourt. Um, but Michelle developed something called the Viper because he saw that hockey players that worked on the farm all summer were less injury were less injury prone than kids that worked in the gyms all all during the summer. And so he created the Vipers, basically like a bale of hay to do different movements in in the gym instead of just linear movements. Yeah, a lot of this, you know, functional strength training, of course, has its uh, roots. In, you know, interval. People say is interval training a fad, and I say, well, not really, because I, I I think it's more an approach. You know, and you can apply intervals to functional. Uh, whole body resistance exercise. You can apply it in a cardio manner. So I think it's just more an approach to exercise as opposed to being a specific type of exercise. And it's certainly not a fad in my opinion. No, not at all. And for people that have been doing this for a while, I mean, we know, cause how do, how do elite um, athletes, elite runners train, you know, people training from the 100 to the 400, they train in intervals. And, and, you know, when you look at their physique, they're not training physique, they're training for performance, you know? So I think, is there something we can learn from from looking at that type of high intensity training you know, I, I think so clearly if you want to be an elite, uh, you know, short distance athlete or sprinter, intervals are essential. But for any serious endurance athlete, they're going to be incorporating intervals uh, as well. And so it's a technique that I think can just be widely applied from a performance standpoint uh, to, to almost anyone. And of course, you know, there, there's when I talk about interval training, there's sort of three approaches. One is like, what's new here? Athletes have been doing it for 100 years. And certainly there's a lot of elite strength coaches and performance coaches, you know, that have been adopting these principles. Uh, the other side of the coin is, oh my God, this is a heart attack waiting to happen. You can't do this at all. And sort of the middle reasonable ground approach is, oh, there, maybe there's some new stuff here, but we should also learn from, uh, from, from our history. But in some ways, you know, the scientists play catch up. The athletes are already doing things that they find works. They can't really explain why. And then the scientists come and sort of explain the mechanisms, but often are just reinforcing uh, what some individuals uh, already knew. Don't you find that somewhat ironic as, as a professor that that it, there's a kind of a chicken and the egg when it comes to, to exercise science, that you, you'll see something become popular in a gym or become a popular fitness trend, and then the researchers will come along and then try to understand that. Is that, do you, in your lab, do you try to kind of just go after stuff that interests you, or do you see main stuff that's gone mainstream and then try to explain why it's working or what's happening in the body um, from doing that type of exercise? No, we, I guess we study questions that are of interest to us. You know, you know, I'll often say, I used to be able to say, look, I have no vested interest in this. And if interval training didn't work, we would have moved on a long time ago. You know, now, of course, I've written a book that tries to explain it. And so at least there's uh, that that link there. So, I, you know, I, I can't say I have no vested interest anymore. Um, but the, the we ask questions that are of interest to us. Sometimes we'll do some product testing or industry-sponsored research. But really, most of our research 
is just intellectual, curiosity-driven research. And I'm just fascinated by interval training because we can use it to study basic mechanisms of skeletal muscle adaptation, and we can apply it in a you know very real world setting to individuals with type 2 diabetes and track their blood sugar responses in in real time so i, I sort of like it for both the basic and applied clinical research that we can conduct using this you know this single tool if you will well and as i mentioned um yeah i did come across your name a number of years ago when i used some of your studies uh to support some stuff i was doing in, in some uh, a couple of workshops i was creating for fitness educators. Now let's, let's go in, because I think one of my fears, um, Marty, is, is that people have kind of taken the concept of interval training, and just like all Americans do, and I'll say this is a, a uniquely American trait, we take a little bit of, so, of something that's really good, and we think a lot more of it will be better. So what is really, what's, when it comes to interval training, what's more important? Is it duration or is it intensity? And, and how can we explain that? Yeah, to my mind, intensity trumps duration, and I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit. But, you know, let's even start with a definition of interval training, which is just really alternating periods of more intense effort with periods of recovery. Uh, I think people have this notion that interval training is only this all-out extreme, as hard as you can go exercise. Certainly, that's one type, and it can be extremely efficient but it's not necessarily safe or suitable for anyone, uh, or everyone rather, at the other end of the spectrum is interval walking. Uh, So uh, if your only exercise is walking around the block, picking up the pace for a few light posts and then backing off, that can be an interval workout for you. And that type of work has been shown to be actually more effective at boosting fitness, improving blood sugar control in people with diabetes. So interval training really spans the gamut. And I think some people uh, almost want to corrupt it, if you will, and say it's only like this. And then I think that's where some of the the pushback comes uh, because people are like, wait a minute, that is crazy. You know, we wouldn't want anyone just sort of jumping off the couch and, and pedaling their hearts out on a bike, for example. And, and is that, and, and that was one of the questions I was going to ask, I mean, obviously that we know that, that intensity is critically important, but can somebody start, I mean, if somebody is having, isn't really working out now, can they start interval training with just doing a little bit more than they're used to doing? I, I do think someone could start with with intervals, and again, I would say these these gentle intervals. So, of course, you know, th- you, you want to build gradually, but I, I would make the point that you know interval training has been applied in a cardiac rehabilitation setting um, for decades. Uh, you, you know, and and it, this is where you look at the scientific history and you learn. But certainly, there was immense work being conducted in Germany in the mid 1980s, work in North America even before that, but looking at uh, interval training in a cardiac rehabilitation setting. So people coming in after a heart attack and then using interval workouts uh, to, uh, to to build fitness from there. And the point, we tell the story in the book, uh, for some of these individuals, they just can't do continuous exercise at almost any level. And so rather than being afraid of intervals, it sort of reframe it a little bit. Because if you look at these individuals, they get out of their car, they take a few steps in the parking lot, and then they have to stop and take a break. Then they, then they walk a little bit more. They're basically doing interval training because they have to. It's the only way that they can they can function. And so when you sort of flip how you think about it, it's not as perhaps you know crazy to think that interval training can be applied to very deconditioned individuals. It's all about how you how you scale it. And I'll come back to that in a second because I want to ask. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on 
physiologically with interval training because I think a lot of times we, we fall back to the marker of simply heart rate. And, and there are a couple very popular modes of exercise or companies promoting a heart rate based. But let's look at what, what's exactly is happening to the body from an energetic standpoint, from the, from the metabolic standpoint when we do a high intensity interval. Yeah, well, for you know, maybe we can dispel the notion that HIT is anaerobic exercise because it's not. You know, if you do a single hard sprint, <coughs> most of the energy is going to come from anaerobic sources or non-oxidative sources. But if you do repeated sprints or any form of intermittent exercise, the vast majority is coming from the aerobic system. Uh, there's lots of studies demonstrating that in the laboratory. So to, to characterize HIT as anaerobic training uh, is wrong. Uh, and so once you understand that interval exercise uh, largely uh, utilizes aerobic uh, metabolism, it's perhaps not surprising that it can be such a potent stimulus to elicit aerobic adaptation. So your heart becomes a better, stronger pump. Your blood vessels get more elastic at delivering oxygen and your muscles get better at, at using those the oxygen that gets uh, delivered. So uh, again, there's some common, I think, misconceptions about interval training that are really important to uh, to dispel. Now, is one of the benefits of, of interval training, you know, we use the energy, energy substrates, is it, you know, you deplete through the glycogen, the, the available glycogen, the type 2 fibers. So is one of the benefits of interval training like how our body processes carbohydrates and, you know, why is that, why is that beneficial for us? Uh, yes. Yeah. So, you know, getting back to the basic physiology, uh, the, the underlying molecular cellular pathways uh, are, are quite similar and, and just that we trigger them in different ways. So the analogy we use in the book is one of the ways uh, that you can trigger adaptation. So let's talk about glycogen or carbohydrate, as you alluded to there, is you can sort of step on the gas pedal and hold it there for a prolonged period of time. And so fuels in the muscle slowly start to decline. The body senses that. There's literally protein proteins in the muscle cell that serve as molecular fuel gauges. So they sense that decline in fuel and they respond and adapt. Uh, with intervals, you can imagine you're stepping on the gas pedal harder, in some cases pushing it right to the floor, but holding it there for just a very short period of time. And so there, fuel gauges in the muscles are dropping very rapidly. And so the body appears to be able to respond to these rapid changes in fuel status as well, uh, even though it takes less time and trigger the same fundamental uh, remodeling. And so some of your work, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but why is that beneficial for, for people dealing with diabetes, whether it's onset diabetes, well, primarily onset diabetes due to, you know, due to being overweight or due to lack of activity? Why would this type of interval training kind of help counteract the, what's happening, what's going on with the body in, re, in relation to that? Yeah, so one of the adaptations in muscle is the muscle's ability to take up blood sugar uh, is enhanced. So there's these uh, proteins on the muscle cell, glucose transporters, uh, and we know that one of the benefits of exercise for blood sugar control is that the muscle cells get better at basically mopping up or sucking up this glucose or blood sugar, uh, getting it into the muscles and either storing it as glycogen or, or breaking it down. And we've shown in, for example, people with type 2 diabetes, even if they do a few sessions of interval training over a couple of weeks, uh, the glucose transport capacity in their muscles uh, is markedly elevated. So uh, again, we can show at the molecular level some of the adaptations that we think is related to the functional outcomes or the clinical changes that you're seeing uh, in, in these individuals. And I just want to I want to highlight um, you know, what you said there for a second because you know I think well you said we think you know and we don't really definitively know even when you study the human body 
we don't really develop a definitive knowledge, do we? But we develop a really good kind of estimated guess, correct? Yeah, you know, these theory, I, I, I'll tell my students that, you know, individual scientific, it's, it's a bit like building a house. You know, these bricks can look very, very different. And so with a single scientific study, you can say almost anything. But then after a while, the, the shape of the house starts to take shape as as more bricks are added. Uh, and so you can think of that in, in any scientific theory, more and more bricks are being added. And I, I think that, you know, the interval house, if you will, is is fairly firmly established now. We still have things to learn, but I think we can clearly say that one, intervals can be a time-efficient way to elicit adaptations that we associate with more traditional exercise training. Um, and also, if you can compare equal amounts of exercise, so a given dose of exercise, uh, I, I think more intense exercise uh, is uh, is better and is going to elicit superior adaptations on sort of a, an apples-to-apples apples comparison or matched work basis. Well, and do you think, because I think one of the reasons why people, many people start fitness programs, and we're coming up on the beginning of the year, so this is going to be a hot topic for the next number of weeks, but I think one of the reasons why people start fitness programs is to improve muscular definition. Does interval training do a good, just high intensity interval training, how does it help boost muscle definition? Doesn't it activate more type 2 fibers related to the size and definition of muscles? Yeah, I guess a couple points there. Yes, for sure. Um, interval exercise does recruit or stimulate these type 2 muscle fibers, and so they respond and, and adapt. Uh, if you want those fibers to grow or hypertrophy, uh, you, of course, have to apply a resistance exercise stress, either through weightlifting exercise or bodyweight-style training. Uh, cardio intervals on a bike, for example, aren't going to do a whole lot for, for hypertrophy. Um, you know, intervals, personal trainers talk about the afterburn or this idea of a heightened metabolic rate in recovery. Recovery. Uh, it's often overstated, but it's real. So when you do more intense exercise or intervals, uh, the the rate of calorie burning and recovery is definitely up. Uh, for a period of time compared to more continuous, moderate exercise. Um, and so intervals, you know, like any exercise, can support weight loss. Um, but clearly the biggest driver there is uh, is nutrition. Whether it's 90-10 or 80-20, we could debate. But, uh, you know, it's a lot easier to control the energy inside of the equation when we're talking about uh, body mass, body composition. So so that, that kind of comes back to that statement that, that abs, for people that are interested in that, abs are made in the kitchen, correct? <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah. Because I think I think a lot of people will sometimes they look to they, you know, they start an exercise program think it's going to change everything, um, and then if they don't change their diet or don't change other habits, then it's not really going to change that much at all. Unfortunately, now uh, let me ask you: Is it safe for for people that that get into their forties, fifties, sixties? For people that get a little bit more mature, to use that term, is interval training safe for them? And is high intensity interval training um, itself safe for for people throughout the aging process? Yeah, so a couple of key points here. And the first, I'd come back to this idea that interval training is infinitely variable. And so it ranges from interval walking to short, all-out maximal sprints. So that'd be point number one. Point number two is interval training has been widely applied now to individuals, older individuals into their 80s, uh, individuals with type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, obese individuals, uh, heart disease patients, uh, and shown to be beneficial. Uh, Now, that being said, at an individual level, it's important to see your doctor uh, to assess any potential underlying risk factors uh, that, that you may have. So, you know, again, at the individual level, 
before you change or begin an exercise uh, regime, it's just common sense to see your doctor and, and get checked. But people don't need to be afraid of, of intervals. You know, we'll read in the paper, certainly in Canada, we'll see these stories, high profile stories of the, the, the beer league hockey player. So the guy in his 40 or 50s, he goes out and plays hockey with his buddies once a week. And occasionally you'll read these tragic stories of an individual who suffers a heart attack and dies on the ice. Of course, very tragic on an individual level. But if you look at the broader epidemiological evidence, it would suggest that even a single weekly bout of exercise is protective <coughs> against your risk of dying from all, all causes. Uh, and so again, at the individual level, get checked, but people don't need to be afraid of high intensity intervals. And they've been applied to many different uh, populations. For the book, I went and talked to some of the leading cardiologists in the U.S., and the message was just what I said to you. You know, if, if you're an older individual who might have some symptoms, you're not time-pressed, start with some moderate exercise. But if your choice is to do high-intensity intervals or nothing and just remain completely sedentary, you're much better off doing intervals. And, and I think that's a very important message because – and I just want to reiterate that, you know, from, from being the host of the podcast – is that exercise, any exercise is stress on the body. And if you're going to introduce a new exercise program, if you're listening and you're not really haven't been working out for a while, you want to start working out, interval training is very safe, as, as Marty said. But really, it is suggested that before you add a new stressor, make sure you see a doctor to identify any underlying existing stressors, such as disease that you may not know you have. So I just want to make sure to kind of hit that from a, <laughs> from, a, uh, from a safety standpoint there. Now, with that, that said, um, talk a little bit more about EPO. Because um, I think I think a lot of people get this m misconception that okay, I just did a hard workout, therefore I'm burning more, more calories. Let me go pick up a frozen coffee drink and a muffin on the way home. I mean, so you said epoch is real, but how much does it account for in the uh, post-exercise um, oxygen consumption? Yeah, so you know we've done studies in the lab where we've looked at this, and so for example, a 20-minute session of intervals may result in the same calorie burn over 24 hours as a 50-minute session of continuous exercise. Now, that, of course, depends on the specific intensity and everything like that, but suffice to say, intervals can be a time-efficient way to burn calories. Um, but there we're talking about maybe 300 calories with each of those uh, workouts in, in, in total. So, you know, when you consider that a donut may have 250 or 300 calories, uh, it speaks to this idea of, you know, the, the energy inside of the equation being uh, important. And so when it comes to afterburn, you know, if you look online, you'll see these massive epochs drawn or these massive amounts of uh, afterburn. It's actually quite small. You know, the, the uh, energy expenditure remains elevated for a, a small amount of time in recovery uh, that, you know, that may last for a couple of hours, but we're literally talking here, you know, 10, 15 calories an hour higher uh, than, than basal metabolic rate. So uh, you can't, uh, it's often overstated. And in fact, the epoch is actually quite small. Um, but these little changes add up over time. You know, if you do the math on a typical individual who gets out of college and perhaps puts on 30 pounds over the next 30 years or so, you do the math and it's maybe a half a teaspoon of sugar uh, a day in terms of the calorie differential. So these small uh, amounts really add up over time, whether it's uh, energy expenditure or, or energy gain. And, and that's, I think that's important for people to realize is that just, and that is one of the biggest benefits is it's net, you need to look at your net energy expenditure during the day, because I think what we're starting to see is that people can exercise for an hour, but if they spend, you know, the next eight to 10 hours being sedentary, 
um, that that might counteract the exercise. Is that is that something that you've noticed or is that something that you've paid attention to in the literature? We're increasingly interested in this idea of exercise snacking, uh, taking some clues from continuous work that's out there. So, for example, there's been studies that have compared uh, 30 minutes of continuous exercise in a single session or three 10-minute bouts of exercise spread through the day. And the evidence, uh, at least the preliminary evidence, would suggest actually the, the exercise snacking or breaking up the workouts through the day may be a little better for you in terms of uh, blood sugar control, in terms of blood pressure control. And it probably relates to what you alluded to there, these prolonged periods of sedentary behavior, prolonged periods of muscle inactivity uh, is, is bad for us. And so now we're starting to look at what if we break up the one-minute workout into even shorter, uh, more frequent bouts of exercise uh, through the day? Do you get the same gains in fitness and, and things like that? Because this concept of exercise snacking, it resonates for a lot of people because it's a lot easier to fit in these shorter, more frequent workouts through the day. And when I say workouts, these are just things that can be done anywhere. You know, a set of air squats in your office or, or taking the stairs uh, from, your, from your coffee break. So just sprinkling physical activity into your day more breaking up these sedentary periods, uh, clearly very beneficial. And, and that's, that's very important for people to hear because I, I think they just need to start making act, more activity a habit, period. I mean, instead of just saving it for an hour a day at the gym, which is great and much better than nothing, but if they can find ways to walk more or just do more activity throughout the day, I think people would be surprised at how quickly they see results. Now, just one or two more questions um, you know, before we finish up here. Is interval training, are the adaptations specific to the muscles involved? Meaning that if you're only doing cycling or you're only doing sprinting, are your upper body muscles receiving any benefit from high-intensity interval training? And is that a reason for doing maybe some boxing or some heavy rope work to incorporate the upper body muscles as well? Yeah, boy, that could be a whole podcast. Uh, and, and so, you know, generally speaking, uh, if you're a cyclist, you're not getting much adaptation in the muscles of the uh, upper arms, for example. So they're not becoming more uh, aerobic. Uh, but we're increasingly learning more about uh, these systematic factors that may circulate. So, you know, how when we do exercise is our skin more pliant and younger looking. You know, it's related to these circulating factors. Uh, uh, my colleague, Mark Tarnopolsky, talks about exerkines. So basically these hormone-like substances that are released from muscles and may circulate an impact on, on, other, on other tissues. So clearly there's some systemic benefits of exercise, regardless of how we do it, that, that we're learning. Uh, but from a, you know, um, a, a performance uh, standpoint, the the principle of specificity still largely holds. So if you want to be a good cyclist, you got to spend a fair bit of time uh, cycling. There's some trade-off there, you know, in the old phrase that your heart doesn't know what your muscles are doing is, is also true. So you can get cardiovascular benefit, whether you're doing cycling or swimming or running or elliptical, uh, but for sports-specific training or for performance adaptations, I think this, the, the specificity principle uh, still holds. And, and that's, an, again, that's an, just an important message to reinforce. Now, now, finally, you know, your workouts that you promote are, are relatively short. And since reading your book, you know, picking it up and reading it and, and preparing for this, I've just been playing around the gym with a couple different intervals, 30-30, um, meaning 30 seconds really hard and 30 seconds relatively easy, and then 30-20-10, meaning 30 easy, 20 moderate, and 10 really an all-out effort. And is some people might not believe that doing only five to 10 minutes of that can provide benefits, but, but that's the case, right? Just doing short intervals, as long as they're high intensity, really can provide, you don't need to go that long. 10, 12 minutes would be more than enough to provide a good workout, correct? 
without question. You know, where the title of the book, The One Minute Workout, comes from, it's from studies where we've had people do three 20-second bursts of very hard exercise. Now, that's normally set within a 10-minute total time commitment, including warm-up, cool-down, and some recovery periods. But we've shown that people who do those three 10-minute sessions a week um, can get the same benefits, at least over a couple of months, as people doing 150 minutes per week of continuous moderate exercise. So we're talking here the boost in their cardio fitness, the improvements in their blood sugar control, and even some of the changes, the molecular changes in muscle, even though the interval trainers are doing five-fold less uh, time commitment. So unquestionably, these short, hard intervals can be very effective. It's not the only way to train. It's not for everyone. Uh, responses are highly individualized, but short, hard workouts can be very, very effective to elicit the adaptations we associate with a more traditional approach. And then how many times a week? I mean, what's your recommendation, especially for somebody in their 40s or 50s? It's it's not something they should do every day. I mean, could they do it every day or how should they structure and allow for, for recovery from the workouts? Yeah, you know, most of our studies have people doing intervals three times a week. I, I think variety is best, right? So at the individual, you know, I, I'm someone, I, clearly I like intervals, but I still like to go for a walk with my dog in the woods, right? So it's variety is best. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, it's like it's like investing your money. Uh, you can buy one stock and maybe hit a home run or a Michael bust as well. And so the, the best approach is spread out the risk a little bit or use a varied approach to investing because that's probably going to be your best payoff in, in the long term. And and minimize uh, risk of, of nothing happening. So I, I think when it comes to exercise, it's much the same approach. Um, you know, but it, now if you're someone who absolutely hates intervals uh, and you find them very uncomfortable, I can talk to them blue in the face and you're not going to adopt it. So maybe continuous moderate exercise is best for you. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, there's some very busy type A time-pressed executives who do their training almost exclusively using intervals and it works for them. So it's, it's highly individualized and I think a varied approach to fitness is always going to be your best bet. The best exercise for you, something you like, enjoy because you're more likely to stick with it over the long term. And that, that's such an important message. Well, uh, Martin Gabala is a PhD out of and you're at McMaster University in Canada? Correct. Okay. He's the author of one, The One Minute Workout, How Science Shows a Way to Get Fit That's Smarter, Faster, Shorter. Yeah, Marty, I've been reading your stuff for years. It really is a, a pleasure to finally speak with you in person and uh, to catch up with you a little bit, to learn a little more about HIT training. Um, any final thoughts just about on, on finding – do you have a favorite style? I mean, do you have – you talk about walk, going for walks with your dogs, but when you're in the gym – do you prefer bike, treadmill? What type of equipment do you like? Yeah, so I, uh, I I used to be a track runner, and and so now I'm almost 50. I have uh, knee arthritis, and and so uh, cycling is my go-to cardio exercise. Uh, I'm still able to skate, and so later on today, I'm going to head to my uh, weekly pickup hockey game with uh, some of the uh, other faculty members here at McMaster. So I try to take a varied approach to fitness. I rarely go to the gym, and that's because uh, I basically have set up a power rack in my basement. I find it works for me, right? Uh, I have kids, busy life, like a lot of of other people. So for me, uh, having a, a go-to exercise of cycling indoors during long Canadian winters, uh, outdoor on the trails near my house in the summer, sprinkle that in with uh, some, some lifting and bodyweight style stuff. And uh, that's what it, I find works for me. Awesome. Excellent. Well, Martin Gabala, thank you for your time. And I look forward to catching up with you in the uh, not too distant future. Pete, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. That was a fun conversation for me. And and I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. 
One of the reasons why I do this podcast, one of the reasons why I love doing this podcast is number one, I enjoy sharing this information with you, right? I mean, I'm a natural teacher. I've been teaching personal trainers for more than 15 years. I enjoy teaching. I enjoy sharing. Teaching helps me learn more. Having the opportunity to interview people like Dr. Gabala helps me learn more. I, I get great insights. I love learning about exercise science. I'm a complete geek on the topic. So having the opportunity to interview Marty was awesome for me. And I was fanboying because I had to tell you, I've read, I've I had a whole three-ring binder of his studies. And now I have a copy of his book, One Minute Workout. It's a very easy read. So if you enjoy high-intensity exercise, if you want to know how to contextualize it and put in your workout programs, you can buy my book, Smarter Workouts, but I also highly recommend Marty's book, The One Minute Workout. It's an easy read. It's not that technical. He had a co-writer with him. So, hey, trust me, as much as I love reading research, it's not easy to read. You got to kind of dive into it and really be familiar with a lot of the technical terms. And in One Minute Workouts, Marty takes away a lot of the technical terms and just tells you how HIIT training can change your life and how to, how to program in a way that's safe and effective for your needs. So again, I highly recommend it because it's great, it's, it's great information that you can put into action right away. And if you're looking for more information, go to PeteMcCallFitness.com, sign up for my mailing list, and I will send out one or two high-quality emails a month to teach you how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. And if you're not already on it, then go ahead and join Clubhouse. I am going to be doing live chats on Clubhouse. I am going to be hosting rooms on Clubhouse. I'm going to be trying to interact on Clubhouse as much as possible. And once I figure it out a little bit more, I'm going to put up a regular schedule on my Instagram feed, on the All About Fitness Podcast Instagram feed, because I really, I truly want to make this an interactive community where not only do you listen to me, which I appreciate and I'm so grateful that you do, but I also want to be able to ask you questions about the type of content that you want to see. So thank you very much for tuning in. I mean that sincerely. I really appreciate your time. I try to provide high quality information. And as always, thank you for stopping by. I do look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.